New guidelines for physical activity have been issued by the American College of Sports Medicine and the American Heart Association this past summer. What are these guidelines? How do they differ from previous guidelines? And how should we advise our patients about exercise? You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals, and welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. William Haskell, professor at the School of Medicine at Stanford University and lead author of the new guidelines. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Haskell. Thank you. Could you just outline for us uh, briefly what the new guidelines are, and then perhaps we can go into some of the newer data and the differences between the guidelines that we had and the current ones? Yeah, the new guidelines that were published this August were really an attempt to update the kind of 1995 guidelines that were produced by the Centers for Chronic Disease Control and the American Heart Association. The reason for the update was that it became apparent that in the 10 to 12 years between 1995 and 2007, there was a lot of new research conducted in the area of physical activity and health. Secondly, there was a little bit of confusion about some of the terminology used in the 1995 guidelines. And also, some other organizations had provided some recommendations that included physical activity in the interim, and they seemed were interpreted to provide a, a message that was different than the 1995 guidelines. So we felt that it was helpful for the profession and the general public to do this update. The update states that for healthy people, moderate activity exemplified by walking five days a week, 30 minutes each session is recommended, or vigorous activity exemplified by jogging three days a week for 20 minutes each episode. Yeah, that's correct. And I just kind of add one little feature to that is that after 1995, there's been a lot of research that has looked at what would happen if you would break up that 30-minute bout. So let's say instead of taking time out to walk 30 minutes continuously five days a week, what if on a day you were to do like brisk walking 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at noon, and 10 minutes in the evening? Would that provide similar benefits in the area of things like weight and blood pressure and blood lipids and so forth. And the answer to that is probably kind of an unequivocally yes. been a number of studies, maybe 20 or so now, that have looked at that issue. And generally speaking, for both men and women, the 30 minutes can be accumulated in bouts as short as 10 minutes. We don't have any data on shorter bouts, so part of the recommendation we felt we were comfortable in stating that one can either do, you know, 30 minutes consecutively, one could do 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening, or even three 10-minute bouts spread throughout the day, and the general health and fitness benefits seem to be really quite comparable. And we were interested in that in not thinking, well, is one better than the other, but really wanting to maximize the variety of approaches that patients can use in getting their kind of 30 minutes a day on most days. Well, that's an extremely important and practical part of this. Patients seem to be busier and busier, and if they can get that benefit with three 10-minute sessions versus having to block out an entire 30-minute block, that's very important and I imagine will greatly increase compliance. Well, we would hope, and, you know, we really encourage patients to think about how to build activity into their daily schedule. So 
with this being able to kind of split up or accumulate activity, you know, they might find that on a couple of days during the week that they could build in the three 10-minute bouts spread throughout the day as a part of their work day. And then on the weekend, spend 30, 40 minutes out walking or active gardening or doing things with the kids. So finding a variety of ways that allows you to meet all of your other life obligations and still build this activity kind of into your daily life. That's terrific. And that's aerobic activity. I see a lot of emphasis in various circles being placed on weightlifting or muscle strengthening exercise. Where do we stand with that? Yeah, one of the new parts of this core guideline that wasn't in the 1995 guidelines is based on data showing that resistance or strength training not only improves, you know, muscle strength and muscle mass and ability to lift weights, but also significantly contributes to health outcomes. And such things as resistance training actually helps to increase insulin sensitivity and we think helps then contribute to the uh, prevention of type 2 diabetes. So as a part of the core recommendation right now, we recommend that maybe two days a week, about 20 minutes be spent on doing resistance exercise. And we recommend that most of the large muscle groups of the body, you know, legs, hip, back, arms, chest, be incorporated into a resistance exercise routine. And so it definitely for the general adult population provides both kind of some performance as well as health benefits. But, you know, in a companion set of recommendations that are for adults over age 65 that were published at the same time, there's even a greater emphasis in this kind of resistance or strength training for older individuals. Is that for bones and balance? Yeah, it's for a lot of things. I mean, first of all, it's for maintaining muscle strength because we know, you know, regardless of what else you do, that muscle mass and muscle strength goes down with aging. And and some of it's the aging process and some of it is just the general reduction in strength type activities that older adults do. And so in terms of I kind of I think our first focus and what really seemed to be most important was that some regular strength type activities in older individuals is really important in their maintaining physical independence. You know, the ability to get up out of a chair, get up out of off the toilet, get up out of the bathtub, those are all related to muscle strength and Lots of times when people can't do those activities, that's when they lose their physical independence. Muscle strengthening activity just to maintain strength independent of any other health benefit is really very important. And what's very interesting about strength training compared to endurance training is the benefits can be achieved in a relatively short period of time, like you know, two 20-minute sessions a week, and the benefits occur very rapidly. One sees you know, if you have not been doing much and you do two 20-minute sessions a week, within even three to four weeks, people will see very noticeable improvements in their strength. Hmm. So we really encourage, and for older individuals, there's a lot of things that can be done. We really like these kind of TheraBands or rubber bands that one can use, and they come in with, you know, with instruction booklets or this type of thing, but they're very inexpensive. You can't drop them on your foot and hurt yourself like you <laughs> right. can with weights. the weights. Uh-huh. 
So they're very safe and actually have been shown in a number of control programs in older individuals to be very effective. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. William Haskell from Stanford University about the new exercise guidelines that have been issued. Speaking of older individuals, is there a point at which it doesn't make sense for people to exercise anymore or or not to put as much time and energy into exercise? Not at all. I mean, there are carefully conducted studies in community senior homes showing significant improvements in strength, balance, and flexibility as well as like gait speed or endurance in people even in their 90s. And again, the U.S. healthcare system, despite all of the criticisms, has really contributed significantly to increase in life expectancy and the number of older people that we're going to be dealing with. And in a lot of those people, the most important thing is quality of life and independence. And physical activity just plays an extremely important role with increasing age in in both of those issues. For a lot of people, loss of independence is the biggest detriment to their quality of life. So um, very important is increasing age. And again, I think the message to all of our patients should be, you know, it's never too late. Mm-hmm. Start slowly, progress slowly, but you'll still see a lot of benefit. And is it true, you seem to be indicating that maybe a little emphasis as patients get older shifts from aerobic and a little bit of weight training to more of the strength? Yeah, I think the general data that we have says that as one gets older, and I'm thinking now kind of above 65, 70, is that the resistance or strength training takes on added meaning because of the loss of strength impacts daily activities. Also, it continues to contribute to a reduction in the rate of bone mineral loss, both in men and women. It improves balance and balance and increased strength in order to catch oneself at the beginning of a fall are very important in terms of protecting against injurious falls like hip fractures. So yeah, I think the benefits of physical activity in the older population contributes not only to kind of the chronic disease prevention that we think about in terms of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, but has just a very substantial impact on this maintenance of independence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The next thing that popped into my mind in talking about older people, but my question would apply also to young people who have been sedentary, what are the risks associated with exercise? How do we get somebody who's sedentary to safely engage in regular exercise? Yeah, good question. You know, first of all, for the general population that don't have established morbidities that would increase their risk during physical activity. We've kind of taken this public health approach and saying kind of using good common sense. If you don't have any problems and you, you know, see a physician on a reasonably regular basis, then you could surely start out with just kind of slow walking and slowly build up to these target rates without a lot of medical concern. If you have established medical problems, you've been seeing a physician, then you really should check with your physician to say, you know, I I want to start a walking program. Do you know any reason I should do that and so forth? And then with patients with conditions that could significantly contribute to risk during exercise, you know, established coronary artery disease, various 
arrhythmias, atrial fib, these types of things, congestive heart failure, then we really kind of move from the public health to the clinical model. And there, the physician needs to play a more active role in kind of both proscribing and prescribing as an individualized activity plan. But again, for many of those patients, it's very safe for them if they're doing a little walking, simply to do more walking and then over time slowly increase both the duration and then speed. Well, I want to thank Dr. William Haskell, who has been our guest. He's professor at the School of Medicine at Stanford University and the lead author on the new guidelines on physical activity for healthy adults that were published in circulation this past summer. He has reviewed for us some of the newer data that have led to these guidelines and has reinforced to us that what we should reinforce to our patients is that it's never too late, that there are benefits all along the age continuum. This has been the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com.